So we are continuing this morning our series that we are calling Unstoppable. We're looking at the spirit being unleashed in the book of Acts. And it's more than just a sermon series. It's, it's, it's more than that. In fact, we are inviting the entire congregation to read together through the book of Acts. We did this back in the spring with the Gospel of Luke, and now we're inviting everybody to read through. We put together a reading plan. It's available on these little bookmarks that are left around all over the place. We encourage you uh, to do that with us. Uh, we've also put together all sorts of other different resources that are available on our website, universitychristian.org slash unstoppable. There's uh, video uh, study guides, all sorts of different resources. We encourage you to pay attention to those and check them out. You see, as, a, as, a, as an open-hearted church for curious-minded people, we are taking a deep dive into the story of the early church and this remarkable spread of the gospel from from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, we find in the book of Acts, and seeing how today we, we continue to be a part of that movement, that we now play a vital role in that continuing story of God's unstoppable kingdom as it makes itself be known on earth as it already is in heaven. So we've made it through 10 chapters so far, and today we're going to unpack a story that appears there in the 10th chapter that centers around the conversion of a man named Cornelius, but as often happens to fully understand, to fully appreciate the full context of that story, we have to know what has happened before it. And what we've seen in these last few chapters is the expanse of the church, the church continues to grow, the spread of the gospels continues at a, at a rather surprising pace. And it's not, just, it's not just the number of people that have joined the church, but the types of people that have joined. And I'm going to talk about that in just a few moments. And here, at the very beginning of chapter 10, we are introduced to Cornelius. In chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, In Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, in the Italian cohort. Now, from that one little brief verse, we learn a whole bunch about Cornelius. One, he's in Caesarea, which means that he is a Gentile. A Gentile is a fancy word of saying that he was not Jewish. It was believed at that time that Jesus came for the Jews and not anyone else, and so the fact that he is a Gentile is suspicious. Not only that, but he's a centurion in the Italian cohort. As a centurion, he was the, the, the commander of a hundred other soldiers. Centurion, century, a hundred soldiers, which meant that he was pretty high up in the ranks. And a part of the Italian cohort meant that he was a member, a commander in the occupying military. So all that to say, of all that we learn about Cornelius here in the first verse, there is nothing about him that makes us want to go to church with him. <laughs> but despite that, we also learn about him in the next few verses, that he was a pious man, he was a generous man, and so despite the fact that he's an enemy, we can still think that he was a good man. And that Luke tells him that he has this vision, and there's this angel that appears and, and this voice that calls out to him by name Cornelius and tells him that his prayers have been answered and that he should send three of his men the very next day to a city called Joppa. 
And once they arrive in Joppa, they should find a man by the name of Peter. But that's all. That's all the instruction that he's given. Doesn't explain why. Just do it, the angel says. Meanwhile, Peter, who is uh, the one that we've been hearing about the most over the next, last several weeks, uh, one of the most prominent of the apostles, at the same time that Cornelius is having his vision, Peter is also having his own vision. He sees this sheet come down. And on this sheet, there are all sorts of different animals, reptiles, birds. And this voice comes to Peter in the midst of this and says, kill and eat. In other words, Peter, go hunting. But, he says, wait, I'm kosher. I don't eat those types of animals. But then the voice says, not once, not twice, but three times, what God has made clean, you must not call profane. Now, Peter's confused about what all this means when suddenly these three men sent by Cornelius show up his door and knock and ask to see him. And they tell the story. He had this vision. They came and sent us. You are to go back with us. And the very next day, that's what happens. Peter and these three soldiers go and find Cornelius, and that is where we pick up the story this morning. This morning's scripture comes from the book of Acts, chapter 10, verses 34 through 48. Here begins the reading. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem, they killed him by hanging him on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as the judge of living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on the Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Can anyone keep these people from being baptized with water? They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. 
So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few days. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? And he ordered them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. A woman in our church, Gail, sent me a story this last week about a boy by the name of Nick. Nick was probably seven, eight years old. And one day, Nick's mom was walking past his room when she peeked inside, and there was Nick reading his Bible to his cat. Aww. She thought that was sweet and went about her work. About an hour later, though, she hears this commotion, this screaming, this screeching. Didn't know what was happening, so she ran outside where the noise was coming from, and there is Nick with the cat in a bucket of water. She says, Nick, what are you doing? He says, I'm baptizing Muffin. She says, Nick, cats don't like water. To which he said, well, then he shouldn't have joined my church. <laughs> you know, sometimes, sometimes it takes an act of God to convince us that some of the deeply held assumptions that we have about God, about a world, and sometimes even about ourselves, that sometimes those assumptions and long-held beliefs need to change. That's essentially what's happening in this story, this strange, interesting story between Cornelius and Peter. And as I said a moment ago, this conversion story is only the latest episode in a string of other events that have taken place over the last several chapters. And in those stories, the circle keeps getting wider. More and more people are being drawn into this movement, people, people that were oftentimes, until that point, seen as strangers, as others, as outsiders. But yet God continues through a series of acts, continues to open doors, to expand horizons, to open up new possibilities in our world. For instance, in chapter 8, we see Philip take the gospel to Samaria. Now, Samaritans were the worst. They were despised amongst the Jews. One of the most famous teaching of Jesus is the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, what is oftentimes lost in that story is the notion that a good Samaritan, well, that's an oxymoron. No one would ever at that time put those two words so close together. Sort of like jumbo shrimp, small crowd, pretty ugly. We would never use those words so close together. But here, here there is a good Samaritan, no way. These were the last people that the Galileans would have wanted to socialize with, to go to church with, to share the good news with. They would have baptized, they would have rather baptized cats than baptized Samaritans. But yet here they are. And to their surprise, upon hearing the good news, the invitation to the gospel, the Samaritans go all in and they become a part of this emerging movement. And then, right after that story, on the heels of that story, there is this fascinating story of Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. Now, an Ethiopian eunuch, because of his ethnicity, being from Ethiopia, because of his sexuality as being a eunuch, let's just say he was an outsider if ever there was an outsider. 
He was one of those people. But yet he too was welcomed in. He too is baptized. Now, I'm willing to bet that just about everybody here can tell me a story, at least once in their life, a time when, when you felt like an outsider. And I suspect that if you were to tell me about that story, you would do so with a, with a tenderness, with a pain that's just below the surface about what it's like to be told, or to be shown, to made feel like you weren't good enough, that you didn't fit in, that you're just not welcome. Maybe not to the extent of an Ethiopian eunuch, but even the least empathetic among us have some sort of an idea of what it feels like to be an outsider. But I would argue that if there's ever any place where people should be made to feel welcome, made to feel included, made to be valued, worthy of love, well, dang it, it should be in the church. But sadly, for far too many, far too many do not. And all too many can speak about being an outsider in the one place that everyone should be insiders, the one place where everyone should be included. Now, admittedly, sometimes we do that to ourselves. We sort of self-select. We get into our ideas the sense that we aren't good enough, that we aren't valuable, that we aren't worthy of love, that, that we just won't fit in because of some of the sins that, of our past, some of the things that we've carried around, whether it's abuse or betrayal, whether it's addiction or infidelity, maybe it's body issues, some of them, some of us, have secrets that have been buried for years. A number of years ago, when I was serving my previous church, I was serving my home church there in my hometown. And there was a buddy of mine who was still living there, a friend from high school, that I invited to come to church. It was Easter, and Mike's family didn't have a place to go to church, so I called him and I said, hey, Mike, why don't you come to church on Easter? Bring your family. We'd love to have you. And Mike just started laughing. And Mike said, you know, Russ, if I were to come to church, the roof would cave in. And we kind of laughed. But as I hung up, I thought, where does that come from? Where does that come from? Because I cannot tell you how many times over the years people have said to me that if they were to come to church, that the roof would cave in, that lightning would strike, all sorts of... We tell ourselves that we aren't good enough. We self-select. The truth is, we all carry flaws and failures and shame, and sometimes it feels like a stain that just won't wash out. We all have these deep-seated, profound beliefs that we are, in some way, shape, or form, just not quite good enough, that we're too far gone. You know, the truth is that we believe all sorts of things about ourselves, and not all of them healthy, not all of us, not all of them move us, move our lives forward in a beneficial way. But it's interesting the things that we can believe about ourselves, but yet we have a hard time believing that God loves us as we are. That whatever has gone wrong in the deep, dark resources of our hearts and our past, that God has made peace with those things. That we are invited to live in this, this whole new way, live a life without guilt, without shame, without blame, without anxiety. But for some reason, for some reason, we have a hard time believing that. 
We believe all the other things that we aren't good enough. But for some reason, we have a hard time believing that God loves us as we are. Sometimes we self-select or deselect, as the case may be. But like I said, sometimes, sometimes it takes an act of God to convince us that our deeply held assumptions about God, about the world, and sometimes even about ourselves suddenly need to change. This last year, I was teaching the discipleship class. Sixth graders that were preparing to get ready for baptism. And in the midst of one of those classes, one of the kids asked me a question that I thought was pretty profound. He basically said, can I do anything, can I do something so bad that God would stop loving me? To which I wanted to say, what did you do this week? Tell me about what this is. I'm dying to know. But I didn't, I didn't, I didn't ask that. I just simply smiled and I said no. No, absolutely not. There is nothing, there is nothing that you can ever do to make God love you any less than God loves you now. Nothing. My friend Glenn is a pastor. And a number of years ago, he did a funeral for a man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen died of AIDS. And when Glenn stood up to give the funeral, the eulogy for Stephen. He said you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. Because on one side, in the same sense that we have here, two sets of pews, on the one side, down here in front, was Stephen's immediate family. His mom, dad, brother, maybe an aunt or an uncle. And no one else all the way back. You see, Stephen's family didn't approve of who he was. And so they essentially disowned him. But yet on the other side, on the other side, it was packed from front to back with all of Stephen's friends. So on one side, you had Stephen's family of origin, and on the other side, you had Stephen's family of choice. But you could cut the tension with a knife, he said. And so at the end, he stood up to give the benediction. He said, he said Russ, I, I just sort of felt moved. I felt compelled. And I started preaching. And I started preaching, he said, and I started quoting Romans chapter 8. I am sure that there is nothing that can separate us from God's love, not life, nor death, not angels or spirits, not the present or the future, not the powers above, not the powers below. Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing, he said. After the service, he was standing in the back and one of Stephen's friends came up to him with tears welling up his eye. He kind of put his finger in Glenn's chest and he says, do you believe that? Do you really believe what you said up there? Do you really believe that? Is there a church that believes that? Well, friends, I'm proud to say that it is the faith of this church that the grace of God is for every human not because of the faith that we have, but because of the faith that God has in us. But sadly, not all Christians believe that. Tom Long is a preaching professor at Duke, and he tells a story in one of his books about going to a hotel one time. He was speaking at a conference, and he checked into the hotel the night before, and as he was walking in, he noticed that there were signs 
handwritten signs taped all over the lobby. Basically said, it said, uh, party in room 625. All are welcome. All over the lobby, he walked into the, pushed a button on the, on the elevator, and there was another sign. Got into the elevator, another sign. Party, room 625, everybody's welcome. Long goes up to his room on the eighth floor, gets off, and there's signs everywhere. Party, room 625, everybody's welcome. Tom thought, I wonder what's going on in room 625. <laughs> About an hour later, he's sitting there, and he was bored, a little lonely, couldn't find anything on TV, and he thought, I think I'm just going to go see. Who doesn't love a good party? And so he walks out of his room, and now everywhere that they had taped up a sign that said party in room 625 was another one taped over it, taped over it that said essentially, never mind, please disregard, the party in room 625 was a joke. It turns out some of this guy's business associates, whoever was staying in room 625, were trying to play a joke on him and invite him to a party that didn't really happen, which, let me just say, that's a pretty good joke. That's a pretty good prank. I'm going to, pretty good, pretty good joke. But do you know what I think of when I hear that story? I think of the church. I think of the church that promises people new life, promises people a fresh start, promises them that they're going to be welcomed with open arms, but once they arrive, they see people standing with arms crossed, telling them how bad they are, thinking that they can somehow make people good by telling them how bad they are. Friends, anybody who's ever raised children know that that is a recipe for disaster. Sometimes it takes an act of God to convince us that our deeply held assumptions about God, about the world, and sometimes even about ourselves, suddenly they have to change. And here, when, when Peter meets Cornelius and sees him through the eyes of that dream, this, this Gentile, this outsider, he says, I see now, I see now that God shows no partiality. This is a, a revelation to him. He has this aha moment. His whole life he'd been taught that the Gentiles were outside of God's grace, that they were too far gone, that they were not good enough, they weren't valuable, they weren't worthy of love. But now all of these boundaries that he'd internalized since his childhood, all of a sudden they were no longer in force. And Peter comes to realize that God didn't, God doesn't, play favorites, that God loves everybody. I wonder if there are any of you this morning who might think that you are outside of the bounds of God's love. And maybe you've been taught, maybe you've been told, maybe you've been shown your whole life and that is so hard for you to let go of. Or maybe it's someone else or someone's else that you think that you've been taught that they were unclean, that they were unholy, they were profane, whatever word you might use, that they are outside of the bounds of God's love. Friends, sometimes it takes an act of God to convince us that our deeply held assumptions about God, about our world, suddenly have to change. Here's the thing that I love about this story. 
is that it's not just Cornelius that goes through a conversion experience. Because so does Peter. Because his understanding now of the wideness of God's love has changed. His understanding of his own life, his own values, it all changes once God's spirit falls upon even the Gentiles. And all of a sudden, because of this act of God, his assumptions must go. And, and in their place, this new understanding of the wideness of God's love must take its place. Sometimes, friends, sometimes it takes an act of God to convince us that those deeply held, established assumptions about God, about our world, and sometimes even about ourselves, they have to change. May all who have eyes see. May all who have ears hear. And may all who have a voice proclaim of the wideness of God's mercy. Amen.